It's time to turn down the noise and tune in to News You Can Use, the show that gives you a quick insight into the latest twists and turns in healthcare news, where every diagnosis comes with an order of side-splitting humor. Your hosts are Dr. Nick, a longtime host, innovator, and healthcare wizard who can prescribe a digital dose of innovation to cure even the most ailing operational inefficiencies. And Dr. Craig Joseph, the healthcare guru who can diagnose both patient and software glitches with equal precision, making sure hospitals run smoother than a well-oiled robot dock. So buckle up, because we're diving into the ER of excitement, the ICU of irrationality, and the waiting room of wacky wisdom. Now here's Dr. Nick and Dr. Craig. Welcome to the month of January. I'm Dr. Nick. I'm Dr. Craig. This week, we'll be dissecting the latest healthcare news, unraveling the twists and turns, and making sense of all of the debacles. Just remember, life's a lot like a breaking news story. Unpredictable, often absurd, and occasionally leaves you wondering if it's all just a cosmic prank. This week, we take a look at COVID, back in the news, and its long-term effects. And we dive into GLP-1 agonists and whole-body scans. But first off this week, we're going to talk about physician assistants and the assistant sort of uh, expansion in the healthcare setting, and specifically what's happening in my original training area, the United Kingdom and the NHS. Wait a second. Can I stop you right there? Oh, of course you can. Are you, are you saying that you're not originally from the United States? You mean you can't tell from my Southern Alabama accent? Yeah, I mean, I thought, I, I thought that's how they talk in Virginia, <laughs> but apparently uh, you're from the UK, so I have to reassess everything now. I, I have to tell you, it's a little bit of a mix because I got into an awful lot of trouble last week when I was staying at the Renaissance Hotel, right. and I was told that's not the way you pronounce that. <laughs> It is not. It is not. No one would pronounce it that way. Well, just to be clear, they do. And I thought it was a British thing. But I, when I got home to sort of validate this with at least some, uh, you know, insights from that country, I think it's my French influence that's causing that because that's how the French would pronounce it. So it, it is the Renaissance. I'm not moving on this. That's fine. You can be wrong and consistent. Uh, uh, <laughs> mostly this is true. <laughs> So let's talk about these physician associates. So they've been around for a while. I mean, I, I think here in the US, that group has been here for an extended period of time. Did you have them during your sort of time practicing and in medical school or, or have they shown up since? No, no, they have definitely been around. I think, you know, I think from a, a physician assistant standpoint, I think a lot of it started after Vietnam. Um I remember reading this, uh, and so don't uh, don't quote me if I'm wrong here. But um, a lot of uh, GIs came back from Vietnam with very advanced medical training, but absolutely no degree, uh, and they were doing you know kind of um, minor surgeries out in in the field. Um, and then they came back to the United States and had really no way to to, to leverage all of those skills and knowledge that they that they had um, unfortunately had to uh, had to uh, uh, you know process, and so I, I think the PA program kind of started from there. But yeah, as a, even when I was a resident, I remember uh, one of my first uh, surgeries where I was in the operating room. Uh, they were doing a coronary artery bypass graft, uh, a cabbage, and um, there was some dude 
when we were opening up the chest at the top of the patient, there was some dude in the in the patient's leg uh, harvesting a vein. And I asked who that was, and uh, I was told that's the PA. And so, yeah, they've been a, they, that 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 position and has been around for a long time in the United States. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say I, I had no idea it was that extended. I mean, it made a lot of sense. I do remember specifically that whole harvesting of the uh, uh, the veins, and you know, that caused immense resistance on the part of the cardiac surgeon who wanted to do that. But in reality, when you look at it in hindsight now, of course, having somebody super well-trained to do that relieved them so that they could focus. And in fact, we take them from different places now. But that was a huge deal. But it made a lot of sense. And, you know, this supporting act, I think, is absolutely essential. Extend the capabilities, have people doing those tasks. But here's what's going on in the UK. Recent article in The Telegraph, you know, I would say... Many of the physicians in the United Kingdom are apoplectic over the extension of all this. It seems like there's a an intent on the part of the government to create this two-tier system where if you don't have access, you get to see a uh, physician assistant or you know somebody like that in a general practice. And we're even seeing them taking on call for what we would call registrars. So that's like a PGY4 or even a chief resident on liver transplant is taken. So nighttime call covered by a PA, which, you know, folks are really troubled by. And there's all of these examples of uh, adverts saying, hey, couldn't get into medical school, go to PA school. And, you know, 18 months later, you'll be practicing as a doctor, you know, and, and many of them sort of uh, posting notes that just raise this enormous question. And I, I, I watched all of this I, I just troubled because I love the supporting capabilities. And, you know, I, I've often been heard to say that nurses were the saving grace for me as a, a junior doctor, certainly. And, you know, we see that extended practice. My wife was a midwife who uh, had prescribing rights, essentially, in uh, the delivery of babies and, you know, stitched and delivered, you know, very different to the US. Um, but where's the line? And how do we sort of manage this? And, you know, my fundamental point, I don't know how you feel, but I struggle even going in now to the physician's office, there's there's a procession of people who show up, never introduce themselves or their role. They just say, hi, I'm uh, Joe or Jane and start doing things. And I have no idea who they are. Um, and I always ask, and they seem somewhat offended when I do, but um, it seems like there's trouble ahead, as we'd say, trouble ahead at mill. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the the, the I, I certainly have, um, I think, mixed opinions, as as does everyone. It's a complicated issue, you know. You have, um, you know, if we if we broaden out this conversation, we're talking about physician extenders. I think is the term, right? And in the U.S., that's typically physician assistants, PAs, and and nurse practitioners and nurse midwives, as, mm. as you just referenced. And, um, you know, different, obviously, well, not so obvious. Um, there is no national license for physicians or nurses 
or PAs in the United States, right? And so- Wait, a second. This is important. When you say national, you mean a centralized single one? I do. So- Yeah, as, as you know, and again, it seems obvious to me, but apparently I'm a physician, so uh, I deal with this. And so uh, normal people may not realize that. Just like your driver's license, you don't get a driver's license from the, from the federal government. You get a driver's license from the state that you live in. Hmm. And, and, and similarly, you get a, a medical license or a nursing license or whatever a PA needs, a PA license. Um, from that state. And if you practice in five states, then you need to deal with five right. different licensing authorities. Because yes. yeah. we know that medicine is different in uh, it is. one state well, from when, the other. When you go Completely. from Michigan to Ohio, it's like oh my God. you're <laughs> on a different planet, of course. But they all, um, for fun, for fun, they all have their own Let's say we've not offended anybody from either of those no. states. Well, no, I'm, I, I have Just a different. license to practice in the state of Michigan, and I suspect my uh, my practice patterns would be very similar in Ohio when I cross that line. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, every state has their own rules of, around uh, what physician extenders can do. And you mentioned that your wife had um, prescribing authority, and, and that is the case in many states. Um, however, where it starts to get a little dicey, and I think that's where you're, you're, you're seeing some of that in, in England, um, is practicing independently or not. Mm. Can, can a PA, uh, it's one thing to uh, and, and the way I've seen it in doctors that I've visited is that there's a PA or a nurse practitioner. And in general, in an office setting, like they can handle most things. Um, but there's there's always a physician either nearby or virtually available so that, you know, if we run into something that's so uh, uncomfortable for them or they don't have a lot of training and that they can they can get a second opinion. And there's someone kind of who has their back, much like a, an intern or a resident Um uh, is making decisions, but it has, you know, supervised, uh, um, attendings looking, looking over their shoulders. Um, and so where's that line, you know? Um, and, and I think the line is independence or not, are these folks allowed to make decisions, um, without, um, any, anyone kind of, um, second co-signing, you know, or, or giving a second look. It, and, it, I, I think based on what you've just described, the UK is definitely stepped over the line because some of the examples that I've read of a physician assistant in the community, in a general practice office, seeing a patient with no oversight and referring to a hospital where that referral is seen by another physician assistant. Um, That, for me, is way over the skis. Um, and I think in the latest data study, there was an extraordinary number of missed uh, diagnoses. I want to say it was like 170 that they identified tied to this. I mean, it, it seems like a real problem. And um, I boy, do they need to fix that. But, you know, I, I, from my perspective, interesting that it's now sort of occurring and causing major problems in other countries, I I think this isn't going to go away and we do have to fix it. Um, Let's move on since, you know, otherwise we'll run out of time. We won't get to all our topics. And, uh, you know, GLP agonists are very much in the news. You picked up on the EPIC research. So uh, always good because there's significant data. Tell us what we're seeing with those GLP agonists and what the data showed. Yeah, so you know we're talking about Ozempic and those kinds of medications. In this case, um, 
uh, Epic, and this is a big electronic health record uh, software vendor that we've talked about that um, gets their customers to share uh, de-identified data if they so choose, and then uh, puts it all in this very large database. And so, um, and then uh, what Epic does uh, once or twice a week is kind of puts out a little mini. Um, little mini study. It's not peer reviewed. It doesn't have the same force as something coming from uh, a major journal, but at least it's kind of directionally appropriate. And in this case, what they did is they were curious to see what what happens when patients are taking, in this case, semaglutide, a GLP-1 agonist, um, or liraglutide, actually. Uh, so taking one of those two medications um, and then stopping and and that's always been the question, right? With these wonder drugs, um, they seem to allow you to lose a, a significant amount of weight. Um, and we've talked previously on the show about some of the benefits of of um, of these medications in terms of uh, other things besides weight loss, um, mostly around uh, urges to do things that uh, you know we we generally would like to stop doing. Um, anyway, the worry was, well, is this a medicine you have to be on for the rest of your life? You know, if you're taking a cholesterol lowering medication, you're on it. If it's working, you're on it forever. Um, and so were these medications going to be like that? And oh, by the way, these medications are exponentially more expensive, at least right now, than other things that we take forever, like high blood pressure medicines or cholesterol medicines. And uh, I, I won't bury the lead here. It looks like from some of these preliminary data that actually more a, a lot of people i'll just say it that way a lot of people did maintain the weight loss that they had and so you know somewhere around 60% or so either maintained um or lost a little bit more weight after they stopped taking the medication and so you know this is uh, only 1 year after discontinuation and so um, or a little bit more, but you know, mm. we, we certainly don't have five or 10 years of data because these medications have not been around that long, but from a preliminary standpoint, it's, it's pretty reassuring, um, to see that the majority of people, not all people, I mean, we're still talking over a third of people regained some or all of their weight when they stopped taking the medication. Um, but some folks did uh, manage more than not to, to keep the weight off. And so interesting study. Um, we'll, we'll see as, as we get more patients, this was, this was with, um, 20,000 patients taking semaglutide and 17, almost 18,000 patients taking liraglutide, which is a, seems like a small number, but it's, um, it's that's, a, it's a big, it's a big, that's a number. big number. And certainly yeah. for studies as, as studies go. So that's great news. And I, you know, I think we've, we've certainly seen, the value proposition. There's, you know, definitely a cynical side to this. You know, take a pill, solve a problem. Um, I, you know, at, at its core, if it just breaks the cycle, I mean, I, I think the fairly well-established fact is, no matter what weight you are at, your body says this is the perfect weight, and anything you try and do to reduce it, it's going to fight. So if you're at, uh, you know. 3x of what you should be, your body's saying, oh my God, this is the best weight. Don't ever give up on this. And, you know, if this breaks the cycle and allows you to get back down, I think, you know, phenomenal. However, 
as you might expect, not quite all good news. And, you know, to your point of of the uh, sort of move to this and uh, large numbers, there's an awful lot of heat currently around the gastro or the, uh, you know, stomach side effects, nausea, vomiting. There was a case in uh, Australia of a patient who essentially tried in into this sort of whole uh, slim down for a daughter's wedding and essentially died. Um, uh, there is now a lawsuit currently undergoing that, you know, is identifying uh, these individuals and saying that they downplayed all the um, uh, gastro effects. But the most striking thing that I saw or read in this was um, and I'm going to quote it directly. But this January, gym goers and diet gurus may notice that the usual crowd of New Year's resolutioners has shrunk compared to previous years. I'm going to say, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and their supposition, and it hadn't occurred to me. I, I, I saw barely any of the crowd that I would, you know, fight with to get to the machines and so forth. Um, and it had disappeared, and they're attributing that to the GLP agonist. So I'm not sure that's a good side effect. It definitely, well, actually, no, let's be clear. It's definitely not. Go to the gym instead of taking these things, or actually both maybe, but, you know, uh, a little bit troubling. So uh, interesting whole area. Um, moving on, let's talk about something we haven't talked about in a while, which is uh, COVID. And I think the major thing here is that COVID ha continues to impact the world. And let's be clear, both as an active uh, infection that people are having, but also we're seeing this long COVID impact that has been studied, uh, you know, not as extensively as I think needs to, but essentially, is there something to this? And, you know, the findings of this extended study suggest that there are numerous, numerous effects of this virus that continue to persist. I, I don't know about you, but I certainly have friends that have both suffered to a, a greater or lesser degree recovered, and some who have absolutely not and continue to be essentially incapacitated. One of the most troubling things was that the brain seems to be impacted and they're seeing cognitive deficits, uh, you know, at an extended period of time, which, you know, as you think about from an age standpoint, I think we saw a tilt towards the elderly. Maybe, I, I, I don't know if this is going to affect the youngers, but um, I, I, any thoughts? Yeah, the, the more we know, the, the more we don't know. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, by think, obviosity, yeah, okay, thank you. Yes. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget to tip your waiters and waitresses. Uh, listen, you know, uh, for those who think COVID's over, uh, it, it ain't. And, um, certainly the, the, the days of the, of the raging pandemic and, uh, hospitals being overrun by, uh, COVID patients, uh, many of whom, for many of of whom they, they there was no treatment and there was nothing that they could do. We're we're clearly not there, thank God. Um, and so so that's gone. Um, but it's it's still uh, uh, it's still out there. There are still patients dying from from uh, COVID. Some of whom uh, have other are, are elderly and have other problems. You know, other chronic care problems. Uh, 
so there's really nothing that could have been done. And much like we still have patients who die from the flu every year, like mm-hmm. these things are going to happen. However, we we have medications like Paxlovid um, and, and others that uh, I, I think are becoming less prescribed and, and people are, are kind of poo-pooing them. Well, it's just like a cold. Well, it's, it's apparently not like a cold for right. a lot of, for a lot of people, for a lot of people. And so, um, and you don't want to be one of those few, few folks, and, and, but there's really no way of predicting, um, you know, who's going to, who's going to, um, who's going to be impaired uh, for a long time or, or, or forever. And we have not gotten, we, we're doing, there's a lot of science about why, why are some, some patients uh, clearly a minority, but why are some patients who who get COVID either uh, had a bad case or maybe not such a bad case, but now they, they've they got all kinds of problems from, um, you know, temperature problems, heart rate, kind of their heart racing to uh, brain fog and, and, and everything else. And trying to trying to um, come up with one one easy to understand uh, way to explain all of that um, is, is eluding us now and might elude us f- forever. And so um, certainly not getting COVID is a good uh, suggestion. Um, I'm not sure that anyone uh, in the United States probably has uh, has not had COVID, even if you think no you COVID had virgins COVID. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's, I suspect. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are some uh, out there, but even people who think they've never had COVID have probably had COVID. Yeah. Um, and and so because of the vaccines, because of the medication, um, because now uh, so many of us have had at least uh, uh, one bout with with COVID, um, we're we're all out there. Uh, but but not getting it again is a, is a good idea. It's certainly not the cold. It's certainly much more complicated than that. And so I, I certainly, when I'm in a large crowd or if I'm on a plane with uh, someone hacking behind me, you you can bet that I'm going to have a, a well-fitting uh, a mask. Ah, yeah, you and me both. Actually, there's a good, there's another good reason to wear one of those masks because if you've ever been on one of those planes with somebody crop dusting, you want to put that thing on. <laughs> yeah, no matter what, right? Like, because <laughs> right. uh, right? re- that's the best test. If you can't smell stuff, then you know it's good. So, <laughs> I, you know, I've had people kind of look at me and like it's just a cold, and I'm and I, you know, my response is, and I don't want it. Like, right. I don't. Why are you telling me it's just? A, I don't care whether you have pneumonia or whatever yep. you have. You have something, and I don't want to get it. And yep. so, thank you very much. I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on your <laughs> <I> opportunity. <laughs> it's it's the gift that keeps on giving, unfortunately. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's uh, finish off, shall we, uh, talking about whole body scans. So good news, you can, for a mere snip at 2500 from one of the many emerging companies, uh, get yourself a whole body MRI or full body, whatever they want to call it. And gosh, they can detect 500 conditions apparently. And wow, this is fantastic because they can point to a single patient that saved their life. You know, this is this N of one. Um, and I, I you know, I, before I let you loose on this, I, you know, to me, this is absolutely slick marketing that is fear mongering um, and, you know, is essentially selling a resource that should be used appropriately. I mean, to this day, we still have challenges determining whether screening is appropriate or not. And let's talk, you know, for a second, mammography, you know, colonoscopies. I'm not saying don't. That's that's uh, to be absolutely clear. But the risk-reward benefit is not 
as simple as you might think. And the idea that, A, you spend that money, so let's add to the medical debt. But by the way, and I've seen this personally, you essentially find things that then have to be investigated. The incidental omers and all the downsides, terrible, terrible, terrible. It's just, I, I just don't do it is what I would say. Well, wait, wait, let's not, uh, don't do it in terms of uh, a whole body scan. Yeah. I don't think you're saying don't do uh, routine colonoscopy. No, 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 no. Or, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, it, it's, it, I, I only use those as examples because everybody's familiar with them and say, hey, we do this and yeah. it makes sense, but it's not quite as simple. I do those. I, I, you know, have my screening and entirely appropriate, but there is a risk balance. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on the it, whole body, would you have one? No, no. And for exactly for what you said, uh, no, it doesn't matter. Because, right. <laughs> again, you're, you, you've got one out of uh, a gazillion where they do find something and treat it and maybe save someone's life. No doubt that's accurate. But a lot more, they're not going to find anything. And But a big chunk of those, like you said, an incidental loma, right? Hey, there's this thing, and we don't know what it means. We can't really be sure. Um, it might be nothing. It might be deadly. Um, we're going to uh, recommend another test, and then we're going to recommend a biopsy. And then, um, oh well, the you know you uh, you started bleeding, so we had to do. So to your point of yeah, none of these screening tests are um, uh, they all have side effects. And um, in general, when we talk about things like colonoscopy and mammography and and vaccinations and other things like mm -hmm. we, we know over years and years and years that the the benefits outweigh the risks for right. for most almost all patients right almost all patients the benefit we don't know that about things like whole body screens and i i suspect if we if we did have the data it would show that most of the time it's not showing anything that we can um uh that wouldn't be found through other other venues most right. of the time but there will always be those stories like there are you know that they're advertising where I, my life was you saved by this always find them but it has to be and and that's the point same with you know generalized screening has to be clinically driven based on the individual their particular risk profile all of those things age risk reward but um I, you know this sort of hey spend all this money just a it's a hard no from me Unfortunately, we find ourselves at the end of another episode exploring healthcare's mysteries before they became your emergencies. Until next time, I'm Dr. Nick. And I'm Dr. Craig. 